Sponsoring the podcast today are The Development Society. The Development Society is a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. They're more than just a clothing company. They truly are a community of like-minded people looking to improve. From merchandise where you have to earn it, not simply buy, to weekly Zoom yoga sessions, they're the best kind of people you can find. Hard workers. The community is open to all who want to improve. If you want to get involved, you need to join their infamous Daily Waves newsletter and their Slack community. They're also active on social media, Facebook, uh, find them as the Development Society and do that to get more of an understanding about their philosophies. But best off, going to the website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk. To get onto their Daily Waves newsletter, go to the website and uh, chuck your email in there and you'll be added to the list of people who get awesome content sent to them and, sent to them and invited to take part in events to do with the, the DevSoc community. Thank you to DevSoc for uh, sponsoring the podcast. And stay wavy in their own words. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes have just held their latest event. It was an online gig with Tom Kirkpatrick, the amazing one-man band. And Rugby for Heroes, through that gig, through that event that they set up, in the midst of this horrible pandemic situation that we're going on, Rugby for Heroes managed to raise almost £1,000 for military charities. That event was to raise money for the 353 Trust. Well done to Rugby for Heroes for raising that money for 353, but also obviously putting on a, a cracking event which was well attended and uh, which brought people together in uh, hard times. I certainly enjoyed it. Kate certainly enjoyed it and everybody else took part did too, so thank you. And also uh, I should say thank you to all the people who donated uh, who donated prizes for the raffle. Awesome prizes were available and were won. Rugby the Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who were founded in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker in 2008. The organisation was founded in 2009 to raise money for military charities through organising uh, uh, fundraising events, rugby-orientated fundraising events. And since their existence, they have raised over, over £110,000 for military charities and for the military community. So thank you to Mike Valance at Rugby for Heroes. You can find out more about Rugby for Heroes by, find, by going to them on social media at Rugby Number 4 Heroes, Rugby for Heroes. And also go to their website, rugbyforheroes.org. Thank you, Rugby for Heroes, for everything that you do. It's amazing. Another one of the sponsors today is the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group, who deploy technical innovations around the world, developed by operators for operators. Since 1982, the Aardvark Group has been saving lives and protecting people and assets against the global threat of explosive ordnance through technical innovations. Like I said, developed by operators for operators, Aardvark answers the needs of states, NGOs, international or regional institutions, and private corporations. The task to clear the world of landmines is enormous. The estimate of how many landmines there are in the world varies, as in there are deployed in the world, varies, but it's it's in excess of 90 million. The Red Cross actually estimates closer to 110 million mines around the world. And the problem isn't just the number of mines that uh, are around, it's the areas across which they're, they're, they're contaminated, and the huge areas contaminated. Um, Croatia, for example, a small country, has been really well mapped when it comes to uh, mines, 
and they have an area of 4,000 square kilometers that's contaminated. That's that's 4 billion square meters, like where you go if you want to risk your life and get blown up by a mine, potentially. These are the kind of areas that Aardvark specialise in clearing, and they've been doing it immensely well for decades now with their technical technological innovations. You can find out more about them um, at aardvark.group, but also follow them on social media. They're on LinkedIn, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, the Aardvark Group. Thank you to David St. John Clare and everybody at the helm, everybody at the helm, David St. John Clare at the helm and everybody at Aardvark for supporting the community, community and for sponsoring the podcast. Finally, sponsoring the podcast today are Monkey Mountaineering. Monkey Mountaineering is a veteran-owned niche adventure travel company founded in 2017 by Sam Marshall and now in their fourth year providing mountain-based travel and adventure holidays. The main trips they offer include treks up Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa, uh, Tubkal, the highest mountain in Morocco and North Africa, and Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America. They also offer treks to Everest Base Camp and have recently added other treks in Nepal to their portfolio, including a trip to Mera Peak, which at 6,467 metres is the highest trekking peak in, in Nepal. Sam has been a mountaineer for over 30 years. During his service in the army, he was lucky enough to be involved in expeditions to climb hardcore mountains on every continent. He now uses his skills and experience he gained as a military mountaineer to run his company and help people make lifelong memories through fantastic mountain journeys. Specialising in small group travel, all monkey mountaineering trips are planned with military precision and focused on exceeding custom expectations. All their trips can be made bespoke and customised as required. Sam also delivers UK-based challenges. Um, events such as the National Three Peaks or the Yorkshire Three Peaks. So if you're looking for a challenge or wanting to raise money for a charity, then give him a shout. He also provides mountain skills training such as navigation, wild camping and rock climbing. Full details of all monkey mountaineering trips and services services can be found on their website, monkeymountaineering.com. And they're also on Facebook as at monkeymountaineering and on Instagram. So why not check them out? Give them a like. Be inspired by the awesome images from some of their trips. Thank you to Monkey Mountaineering and Sam Marshall for sponsoring the podcast. My guest today is Chris Cox. Chris Cox is a former Rhodesian Light Infantry soldier and NCO. Uh, he's also the author of one of the most famous books about the Rhodesian Bush War. Uh, called The book is called Fire Force and is, it has been recently republished. Uh, it's a fucking awesome book. Chris is an amazing individual and you're going to enjoy this podcast. This is the HR Podcast. My name is Hugh Keir and the guest today... Is Chris Cox. Enjoy. I stood there in a daze, bewildered and confused. Bullets, or what I presumed were bullets, zipped through the foliage above me, making a funny cracking sound, and it took me a ridiculously long time to realise I was being shot at. When it dawned on me, I dropped to the ground and crawled into a shally, shallow gully. Then I cautiously poked my head over the bank and attempted to assess where the firing was coming from. But, learning nothing, I just aimed my rifle to the front. I had never fired a rifle in anger before, and suddenly I began to wonder. Was I allowed to open fire? They won't think I'm wasting ammunition, will they? Will they shout at me if I shoot? Will I be charged? I pondered these weighty questions and eventually decided to fire. I tentatively, tentatively squeezed the trigger and the shot rang out. To my relief, I found that no one had objected. Still worried, I glanced to my left at the mag gunner. 
He was firing furiously and taking absolutely no notice of me, so I decided I should carry on. Feeling much better, I squeezed the trigger again and again, oblivious of the intense din that was exploding in my ears. Then, as suddenly as it had started, the firing stopped. We withdrew a hundred metres or so, and I wondered what was going on. What's happening? I asked the burly rifleman next to me. The lynx is coming in for a strike. We must find some good cover and keep our heads down. We ducked behind the shelter of some rocks and waited. Shortly, there came the roar of an aircraft approaching. It flew across the front of our position at treetop level, reminding me somehow of a large grey shark sliding in for an attack. Two bombs tumbled earthward and detonated in a brilliant explosion in front of us. I felt myself wince involuntarily. Immediately we stood up and resumed sweeping towards the contact area. Gelatinous embryo-like lumps were burning as we advanced across the green veld. Corpus Seward spotted what looked to me like a bundle of rags beneath a bush. In an instant his rifle was at his shoulder and he fired three or four quick shots. The bundle grunted and as it rolled over a communist AK-47 rifle clattered to the side. I was astonished. So that was a gorilla. The bundle had seemed so inoffensive. I studied the body curiously. Still smouldering napalm had bored ugly holes into the flesh which gave off a sickly sweet smell. The skull had been shattered by a bullet and brains were oozing through the scalp in a riot of blood and gore. The mouth was fixed in a grimace of death while the eyes stared upwards as if in a trance. So this was death. It was gruesome. It was messy. I suddenly wondered if RLI soldiers looked like this when they were killed. The sweep continued and we discovered three more bodies, killed either by the Lynx airstrike or the K-car 20mm cannon, or both. I soon learned the practice of immediately shooting at anything suspicious, regardless of whether it was obviously dead or not. If in doubt, shoot. That was the way he stayed alive. That was an excerpt from Chris Cox's book, Fire Force, which has recently been republished, and I'm very glad to say Chris is sat in the HR studio with me right now. Chris, that is an amazing read. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I we, When we spoke last week, I said to you, I thought, man, people have been telling me to read Fire Force since I joined the Paras back in 2000. And I never, it's just for some reason, it's one of those areas that never irked me interest. I wish it had because. I've been, read, been reading Firefox frantically for the last few weeks, frantically by, because I couldn't get, I didn't want to get away from the book. I couldn't stop reading it. Um, it dawned on me how little I knew of the situation in Africa at the time. Yeah, yeah. But also how the stories that many of which are documented in your book, how, in, how incredible they are, and even like they just stay relevant. The type of warfare that was being conducted, the counterinsurgency operations there, which was relatively new at the time, hot off the back of... Um, you know, Malaya, uh, and uh, it's like the it's like the the not even the forgotten war over here. It's almost like the unknown war, unless you served with you know South Africans or Zimbabwe, Rhodesians and Zimbabweans. Um, can you can you give a, a an insight as to what was going on in Rhodesia at the time uh, at the time you were conscripted into the RLA? Sure, can yeah. Um, little bit of background, uh, Rhodesia. At the time, 1965, when the Prime Minister Ian Smith unilaterally declared independence from Britain uh, because Britain was wanting to give independence to to Rhodesia, which w- would have meant black majority rule. Um, 
which is why Ian Smith declared independence. Um, Rhodesia was a British colony, and like all the other colonies of the time, Zambia, Malawi, we're all getting independence. Uh, repercussions were fast and furious. Britain imposed sanctions, and straight away the UN imposed international sanctions on Rhodesia, which became effectively a, a kind of pariah state, um, 65. The first um, nationalist uh, guerrilla uh, operations began properly in about 1966, and Zanla and Zipra, the two liberation uh, armies, were all based in Zambia to the north across the Zambezi River, and they started... Um, sending guerrillas into Rhodesia to begin the, the armed struggle, as it was known. Uh, and it, it sort of increased um, slowly. Uh, 1968 was a bit of a watershed moment in terms of the the Bush War. It, it was never regarded as anything other than a, a, a terrorist kind of insurgency. Um, it, it was never seen as a sort of war per se. And, and the, what the Rhodesians did was really what they called border control operations. So it was just manning the borders of the country, which was essentially the Zambezi River to the north, bordering Zambia. And then later, when Mozambique in 1975 got independence from Port uh, Portugal, Portugal basically lost all the African possessions in 1975, which was in our neck of the woods, Angola and Mozambique. Uh, the war then... Uh, Mozambique with Samora Michel uh, as the president offered Zanla a base. So that opened up an extra 1,200 kilometers of border, um, which the Rhodesians were forced to police. Um, Operation Hurricane in 1972 was the first kind of major um, incursion from Mozambique. Uh, by Zanla guerrillas, and they started targeting white farmers, um, police stations, uh, and essentially flooding the northeast of the country. Um, the landmine became their weapon of choice, and it absolutely wreaked havoc. We, we, the Rhodesians were no way um, knew how to handle that. Yeah. Can I ask what the reason for targeting the farmers was? What was their, what was their aim by the targeting the way they did? They were regarded well. They they were uh, part of the white economy, um, and if they could get the, uh, Rhodesia was a farming based economy. Um, if they could get the, the the white farmers off the land, um, they would achieve their objectives, and um, which they did in large areas. They managed to evict the farmers or kill them. Yeah, um, and so yeah, that 1972 was when Operation Hurricane um, was opened. In 1976, when I joined, or when I was conscripted, um, there was a flood of incursions from across in from Mozambique in the east into the east of the country, and what was called Operation Thrasher, and then Operation Repulse in the southeast of the country. Uh, those operational areas were were opened. So, 1976 was I was regarded as the third and final phase of the war from 1965 UDI, 1972 the Operation Hurricane opens, and then 1976 
the rest of the country basically opened up to, to uh, guerrilla incursions. And then it got serious. Um, National Service, which was um, uh, all white uh, boys had to do one, uh, 12 months national service. Um, that was increased fairly soon to 18 months and then two years after 1976. Uh, yeah, so 1976 till the, the end of the war in 1980, the war increased kind of exponentially as um, the guerrillas really just flooded the country and uh, in their endeavour to, to take it over with a, with a military solution. One of the things that the, the book really opened my eyes to um, uh, was, I think, we, again, we spoke about it before, I had this mis misconception or incorrect perception that uh, that it was it, it was a, a, a white versus black kind of war. Uh, in a sim I think that's just my, na well, absolutely my naivety. Um, also sort of not understanding it, the relationship between that and, and apartheid in South Africa at the time. But one of the things the book has really opened my eyes to is that, absolutely wasn't the case or it doesn't seem that way and you had and there were units like the the Rhodesian African Rifles entirely black units and there were there was a a lot of there were a lot of military on you know with the Rhodesian forces who were who were black themselves but when the when the um why, why did the national service not apply to the black population why did it only apply to is that can you, can you explain that? If you yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, although apartheid wasn't a, a, a formalized policy of the, of the Rhodesians, um, it was a racially divided um, a, a society. Um, that was changing slowly, and even Ian Smith recognized that it needed to change, and he even accepted in the later the later years that majority rule, i.e., black was going to happen um, <clears throat> the, the the Rhodesian forces were the vast majority of the Rhodesian forces were black as you mentioned the Salu Scouts for example um, which was the largest regiment uh, regular regiment um, in the war I mean they were 80% black they had they had a strength of over 2,000 people by far and away the, the largest uh, regiment um, national service started originally for whites. Um, they felt uh, that the the blacks were um, filling the the regular ranks of the Rhodesia Africa Rifles, and they didn't need them. Apart from which, they didn't trust them uh, to get blacks into national service. It happened later. I think in 1978 or 79, blacks were conscripted. Was the, was the trust an issue because of the fear that you get guerrillas? Being embedded in, in any yeah, okay, right, yeah, 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 and that did happen. That did happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas the regular troops of of the Rhodesian African Rifles, Salute Scouts, they joined up. They were volunteers, um, and they joined up essentially because it was a job. Yeah, mm. yeah. And at what point did what point were you conscripted? What what was the situation then specifically? And uh, yeah, what year was that then? I I received my little brown envelope. <laughs> in November 1975, just as I was doing my A-levels, and I was told to report to Cranbourne Barracks in Salisbury, or Harare now, on the 8th of January, to, uh, do, to do one year. Yeah. 18? Sorry? 18 years old? Yeah. I just turned 18, yeah, I turned 18 in November. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got just got the call up papers. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. One of the things you, uh, you you mentioned in the book, you touch on is that, uh, you, you, and even I think even now maybe, you, you don't you, you weren't sure about what you thought about the war, you know, and uh, the thought of not uh, the thought of avoiding national service crossed your mind because of. I, I suppose was that cause, just because the the morality of it that you were questioning or you didn't understand it. What was what was that from? No, I, it, it was certainly on the morality. Um, I came from a very liberal kind of family. Um, they didn't like Ian Smith and and his policies, and um, a lot of uh, white kids were avoiding uh, national service, ostensibly being sent out the country to go to university or just leaving. I mean, lots, lots. Um, uh, in the end, uh, and I was going to do that. I mean, I didn't agree with the the policies of the Rhodesian Front in in Smith and um, eighteen at the time, but I, I, morally I felt they were wrong. Um, but in the end, it was your duty, and uh, I thought, well, let's do it. Got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your expectations when you joined? What, what did you think you were going to head into? Did, did you get options of what trade you'd go into? You did to to an extent. Um, your training uh, very much like a British Army. Um, I think it was twenty twenty weeks. Uh, the first six weeks were uh, basic training. I think what the Yanks would call boot camp type stuff. Then the second six weeks were classical warfare training, and the third period was counterinsurgency training. Um, at the time when we joined, the the war. <laughs> was simmering. It had been ticking along, um, and it was only in April, May 1976 that there was a massive incursion, which is when I had my first contact, the one you read out, Um, and that's when the country was absolutely flooded with Zanla guerrillas. Prior to that, um, it had been a steady infiltration. Fire Force, the concept of Fire Force was as a tactic was developed in about 1974, and it was proving highly successful. So the guerrillas were on the back foot the whole time um, until April, May, 76, as I say, when sheer numbers, they started um, flooding the country. So my expectations when I joined, I thought, well, I've been sent to the RLI, only but the RLI was a regular uh, battalion, um, and but they had uh, r- recruiting issues. They w- weren't getting enough... Um, recruits volunteers so they had to dig into the pool of conscripts which was just by um, fortune I guess um, I ended up going to Cranbourne Barracks the RLI rather than um, where everyone else went which was in Bulawayo to the Rhodesia Regiment the Territorial um, National uh, who also handled the National Service troops. What what kind of percentage of of the forces were was con- were conscripts at the time, or what were what percentage of sort of regular? Okay, the 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 Rhodesia Regiment, which was a territorial or the reserve, had ten battalions. Um, not all of them were all based on um, r- regional centres. So, for example, tenth battalion would come from Guelo or. Uh, First battalion came from Salisbury, or you know, a fourth battalion entirely. Um, territorial battalions, they were n- never all of them up to full strength at any one time. But um, I would say that in all, Rhodesians could probably count on about 40,000 troops 
all in. That includes, um, I mean, the regular component were way under 10,000. So the territorials made up the vast majority. Yeah. And they did what was known as six weeks in, six weeks out from 1976 onwards. So um, they had all done the national service and then um, would have to do their territorial call-ups, which ended up being six weeks in, six weeks as a civilian, six weeks in. So, uh, and that proved a massive drain because a lot of people just left the country. Um, you, you can't run your life like that. I mean, six, six weeks in the army and six weeks as a civilian. Um, so that was a. That's why they were always under strength. Uh, one of the reasons. And as the war progressed, it got worse. Yeah. So, yep. so the reasons in the end were just sort of beaten by sheer numbers. So yeah. So I mean, that's that's a crazy concept. Six weeks because it's not just six weeks out of uh, sorry, six being six weeks in the army. That's been six weeks of actually fighting in a war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was it before that then? Well, it, it was kind of like six weeks every. Well, I mean, probably six weeks a year in '65, um, and then then two six weeks as two six weeks as you know, and increased until such time it became almost like. I mean, a lot of them became regular soldiers because of it. You know, mm. yeah. What did the uh, what did the guerrilla um, modus operandi become? When when it was realised that fire for that fire force is highly effective, that counterinsurgency way of operating was highly effective. So essentially, it was uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. It was observers, small amounts of observers in in guerrilla in potentially guerrilla controlled areas, observing uh, enemy activity or suspected enemy activity, report it back, and then RLI or whichever unit would jump into the jump into helicopters or planes and get in there fast, either jumping out of a helicopter or jumping out of a plane with a parachute. Yeah. Um engage the enemy and then get and, and then bug out. Yeah. Um wh- what was their response to that tactic? One so one was obviously f- numbers, sheer flooding of numbers in w- how else were they trying to combat you? They they had their own um modus operandi or, or standard operating procedures for when Far Force engaged them. Um they knew that they didn't want to um, fight because of our air power. Um, so that was, a lot of them did, uh, but generally it was to keep low, try and avoid the scene, um, and duck out of there as soon as they could um, to regroup wherever. Um, but as I say, that, that um, as, as they got bolder with time, they would um, ac- actively uh, combat the Fire Force operation. But, you know, and although they way outnumbered uh, us ground troops, we had air power, we had the helicopters, we had the we had the napalm and the, um, you know, the Dakotas and that kind of thing. So uh, we had a massive advantage. But, um, yeah, they, they had tactics. Uh, f- for example, like in Vietnam, they, they worked out when the helicopters were most vulnerable. Um, they'd sit on the edge of a, um, an LZ and wait till it landed, um, and then ha- have a go from there. Um, yeah, the, as I say, it, it did. Um, but sorry, getting back to the tactics of the of the the guerrillas, you're quite right. They they infiltrated all the communal lands, which were the tribal lands. In fact, 
the Rhodesian government called them the tribal trust lands. They're entrusted to the tribal people, the majority of the population, the povo, uh, which is a Portuguese word meaning the people, as they were known. And um, they can, uh, operated absolutely on Maoist tactics, Mao's little red book. They all had Mao's little red book. Um, I mean, I had a whole library of them at one stage. What, what little red book? Chairman Mao. Oh, Mao's. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, swimming with the people and that kind of thing. That's what they did. Um, they needed to get their food from the from the from the people from the masses, um, and then they indoctrinated them. Um, they ruled by terror, um, depending on where the area was. I mean, and if there was a family, for example, that had a son or a brother in the security forces in the Rhodesian army or the police, that family would be taken out, killed. Um, yeah, they're pretty ruthless, um, how they went about things. Um, but they, they were extremely good in mixing with the the population. And, you know, the classic of in the day they take off the, uni- the military uniforms and mix as uh, a civilian, you know wearing your jeans and T-shirt. The Sulu Scouts, uh, almost all of our call-outs, our successful operations, were as a result of Sulu Scouts uh, calling us out. Uh, Sulu Scouts, they operated OPs in the tribal areas or, um, more often than not, uh, pseudo-guerrilla tactics. So that's what they were renowned for. So the Sulu Scouts would go in as dressed up like guerrillas um, and ma- try to make contact with a guerrilla group in an area. Um, so undercover, you talk about, like you talk like in Labour, yeah, yeah. undercover. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Sulu Scout, just to remind, you know, like, all, all, like 80% black yeah. unit, they would they would go in, pretend to be a gorilla, to yeah. identify. To ident- so that would be to identify where that there was there was enemy presence there. Yeah. And what would they do then? They would they extract and call in a mission. They would then call us. Yeah. They would then get hold of the nearest fire force and say, "All right, we've got a sighting here. We've got uh, fifty Zanla or twenty or whatever. Um, give us the lockstat, and we'd go in there." Yeah. I mean, incredibly brave what they did. I mean, and because they had to be one step ahead because the gorillas. I mean, they had specific way of dressing. Um, they had specific code words. So one false move, and uh, the whole thing was compromised, and they'd be dead. Um, the other success, uh, the other way of identifying uh, where the guerrillas were, apart from the OPs and the Saluskart pseudo operation, was various clever tricks that the special branch, um, uh, the BSAP, the police special branch, were able to do. Um, they would do things like bugging uh, transistor radios in farm stores. Those are always uh, prizes that the guerrillas would come into an area, um, raid a store, and uh, a special branch would have inserted a little tracking device in one of the radios or a couple of pounds of TNT or something. So when the guy switched it on, boom. Um, But uh, those are called roadrunners, little tracking devices, extremely effective. We, so we called out a lot of those um, operations um, that had been tracked down with special branch uh, tracking devices. Yeah. It's extremely, um, uh, what's the word, uh, sophisticated ways of operating. 
from the when you think about the time it was sort of 70s and mm. where it was mm. it you know it's not exactly a developed country with those kind of you would think would have those kind of tracking capabilities or would have units to do that again inverted commas undercover mm, mm, mm. that's like a hybrid sort of non-war way of operating in a war to in to get into what the enemy's doing it's uh, uh, pretty incredible that yeah absolutely um i mean our special branch were amazing they really were uh and then the other way was um when we got a capture um an enemy capture he would then be turned <coughs> as they call it turned to the Rhodesian side um never with any coercion. There was never torture involved. Um, and the special branch were absolute masters at doing that. And then obviously he had a whole lot of information about uh, where the guerrillas were and that sort of thing. I mean, a lot of the Salu scouts themselves were um, turned. They had been guerrillas uh, prior to turning and becoming Salu scouts. Why would the... So without the use of um, uh, uh, torture tactics... Why were they? Why were they able to turn them so effectively? Was it simply because the guerrillas would see the light and go, "Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. they've been completely brainwashed." Yeah, or money. Yeah, the offer of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where were they getting? Where were they, you mentioned mines early on. You mentioned that their, their weapon of choice at the time or their tactic was was laying mines. Where were they getting that? From? Where were they getting the, those resources from? Like. Predominantly um, uh, communist bloc countries. So ZANA was supported by the Chinese um, and the Soviets to some extent, and ZIPRA um, in Zambia were particularly supported by um, the Soviet bloc, uh, East Germany, a lot of the, the, the camouflage uh, with East German uh, rice pattern, um, and their weapons, obviously, all AK 47s, SKs, RPGs. Whole range and the the, the landmines. Yeah. Did they ever have? Uh, did they ever have any form of air asset at any time? No, uh, they didn't. But um, the Zambian Air Force did, and the Mozambican Air Force did. They had MiGs. They both had MiGs, um, but they never ut- utilized them, uh, except no, uh, on occasion in Mozambique. For example, when we were doing our cross-border. Um, preemptive raids into Mozambique or Zambia. Occasionally they used them, but they were scared of losing those to Rhodesian Air Force. I mean, I'm, I'm, the MiGs would have outfought our antiquated um, hawker har- har- hunters and um, vampires. I mean, for goodness sake, that's what we had. Uh, but yeah, they were afraid to, to use the, the air, air assets. They also had tanks. Um, T-54, 55s, um, and w- now and again we came up against those, but only in uh, Zambia or Mozambique. We had nothing. We had the old ferret armoured car. That was what we had. Yeah. yeah. So, <coughs> tanks couldn't speak. Cause those, those incursions into Mozambique and Zambia, they came later on in your time, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm just remembering from reading the book. Um, so, can we talk about that? So, when you when, when those incursions... Uh, how much more significant was the level of risk? Was your was your ability, was your supply chain, was your ability to to get out um, much much uh, much dim- diminished compared to when you operate in Rhodesia? And also, when you come up with thing- against things like tanks, 
right? As, uh, yeah, Rhodesian light infantry for a reason. He ain't, got a lot, he ain't got a lot of heavy kit to deal with stuff like that. How did you? Uh, how are you dealing with coming up against a tank? Personally, I never came up against tanks, thank goodness. But um, some of the guys did, and effectively they just ran away, um, the, uh, withdrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just get out. I suppose, yeah, you forget it's kind of insurgency. I, I, I suppose that's the, there's the beauty of not having to hold ground. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got a bridge too far. Yeah, let's get out. <laughs> <laughs> but what about the what about the, uh, the so the assets you're disposal to, to get out? I mean, you you know you, you would get in, get dropped off in helicopters, I assume, or something. Well, unless you were going on, on on by land on those incursions, or you would jump in, perhaps. And it's much easier to get into a place by those methods than it is to get out. So. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and depending on how far in country the the, the, the target was, uh, so for example, um, Chimoyo, which was about a hundred kilometres across the border, um, Mozambique. Yeah, into Mozambique, um, about halfway to Beira from from Mtali. Uh So that was within um, easy to get into, and um, it quite often we would send in what we called a land tail which is really a convoy of trucks um, and armoured cars and maybe some artillery, 25-pounders, that sort of thing, would, would act, go in. But obviously after the action had started, so as not to uh, compromise the element of surprise. Um, and they would go in there to um, a provide reinforcements, um, extra firepower, um, ammunition, and take out um, casualties, weaponry, you know, armaments, whatever, that kind of thing. Um, but generally, it was all done um, through helicopters. So a big raid um, into Zambia or Mozambique, we would use the entire Air Force's um, helicopter capability. So there'd probably be about, depending whether South Africans were helping us at the time or not, because a lot of their Alouettes were South African Air Force, uh, we'd probably have about 30 to 40 Alouette 3s which were troop carrying slash gunships. They would hold four, four. They could hold four. four. RLI, uh, well, anyone. Yeah. You would call them sticks, right? Stick, yeah. So when you you operate in sticks of four. Yeah. And then what was the bigger unit above that? Then was it? Did you have multiples platoons? We had a troop, yeah, which was the same as a platoon. Got yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, in the old days, it was companies, um, platoon section. Half section, which was a stick. Fire team, you yeah. call it, yeah. Yeah, stick, yeah, 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 same yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. And the only reason we had four-man sticks was because an Alouette three could only take four heavily armed soldiers. So, you know, that was a carrying capacity of an Alouette three. Uh, it changed a little bit um, later in the war, 70, late 78. Um, the Israeli, some Israeli managed to convince the Rhodesians to buy a whole lot of broken-down... Um, <laughs> Bell UH ones, Hueys, <laughs> and I think I think the Rhodesians. We bought about eight or nine of them from this Israeli businessman, and uh, they had to use three or four of them as spares to keep the, to get the other four going. So, <laughs> but that definitely those um, those Hueys, or I think the Rhodesians call them cheaters. The Hueys, basically, yeah. The, I mean, that included the increase the carrying capacity. Enormously, and those are used primarily or well, only for external operations. I think they could carry twelve or, or more, so you know, with three times the carrying capacity of an Alouette. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, we'd use thirty, forty Alouette um, 
it meant that the fire force capability in Rhodesia was temporarily um, put on hold, basically, because every all the air assets were used externally. Um, probably about uh, seven or eight Dakotas to carry paratroopers, uh, and then all the um, air support, the, the, the Hawker Hunters, the Canberra Bombers, um, and Vampires. How uh, how much planning was so let's so for one of those sort of full full air force uh, raids into Mozambique Zambia to uh, I'm assuming onto camps right onto yeah. guerrilla camps yes uh, how much uh, how much plan would that take how much notice would you get were these things that can be done within like a couple organizing a couple of days to go we're going no or, no 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 they, they they took a lot of planning um, and it was always done on an equal the air force and the army both had um, a commander. Um, Quite often the Air Force commander was the overall commander, uh, but it would take a good month or so to, to coordinate the whole thing, at least you know, massive operation. I mean, it, it you're looking at sort of mobilising the entire Air Force for the operation. Um, where, where was the intelligence coming from? On, as an, just as an example, where was the intelligence coming from that you're going to... One, there's a camp in this place. Two, it's got... It's, it's got these resources, these these troops there, these, these guerrillas there. Uh, this is what it's doing out of there. Where was that intelligence coming from, um, generally? Primarily from um, from captures. You know, uh, get the whole history of where they'd been trained, um, where they'd um, been recruited or, or abducted from um, in Rhodesia. Uh, so, yeah, from um, captures, from... Um, uh, uh, photo reconnaissance, high-flying Canberras, fa fairly organised. I mean, they, they, uh, with with the photography, photo recce, the Canberras, and then lastly, um, either SAS or Salu Scout operations. Basically, one or two-man teams going in there, doing reconnaissance operations into the camps. Yeah, and some far. I mean, some were as far as field as. Tanzania and northern Mozambique, um, and you get guys. Some of these salute scouts. I mean, uh, Chris Schulenberg, who is a, one of the most highly decorated people in the war. He's a salute scout. Um, he and his black um, salute scout partner. I mean, they'd they'd go in there. They'd be inserted by um, uh, Halo. Hey. Yeah, uh, into middle of Mozambique or where, mid Tanzania even. Um, and then on your own, um, they'd come back and say, well, we found this camp. It's got 10,000 guerrillas, and there you go. Yeah, so they were, yeah, they were quite brave. <laughs> Unbelievable. Incredible. It's just, it's just, it's just, just incredible. The kind, of, uh, the kind of stuff that went on. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what was the biggest camp that you raided that you were involved in? That sort of those obviously those uh, across border incursions. Yeah, <clears throat> me personally, um, I I did a raid. I was involved in a raid with uh, together with the SAS um, Rhodesian SAS in 1978. Um, it was three three camps. We hit three camps at once um, in Zambia. Um, there was one camp in known as FC Camp that which was on the outskirts of Lusaka. That probably had about three to four thousand um, Zipra recruits and and troops, soldiers. 
then there was another one called or right up in the north of Zambia that also had the same amount, three, four thousand, maybe more recruits and trained troops. That that was um, uh, SAS took that one out. And then the RLI, we had one further to the south, just north of the Zambezi River. Again, probably three to four thousand. So you're probably looking at altogether fifteen thousand, maybe more, maybe more. I mean, I know that the Chamoya operation, which um, three commando two commander and the SAS were involved and I was on leave at the time um, and such was the secrecy that we didn't know about it till literally a couple of days we knew that there was something in the offing but I mean I couldn't put my leave on hold well, I didn't want to I would have stayed had I known but um, that probably had in the region of 20,000 recruits maybe more I don't know very difficult um, and yeah I mean I remember that 196 Rhodesian soldiers went in to take them out, um, obviously with air support. It'd take 20,000 out. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, such was the the confidence in the air force. Uh, I mean, they had absolute soul. They they were not contested apart from um, ground fire anti aircraft um, operation. I mean, we we did lose. We lost aircraft. We lost a few vampires shot down, a couple of hurricanes. We we lost Dakotas. I remember one taken out by an RPG, taking off from a Mozambican strip after a raid. A lone RPG-7 gunner sat at the end of the runway and took him out. Um, and, yeah, and Alouettes were regularly taken out. So they, they had a, a lot of high-powered weaponry in, in terms of anti-aircraft facilities. But the Rhodesians had total air control. Um, total, total. So without that, there was no ways we could have. So, I mean, what they did, well, Ch- Chamoya, for example, it, well, the HR was 800 or whatever, when we knew that the whole camp would be on parade. We knew that we had that intelligence. And that's when the um, the Canberras and the Hunters, they all struck. And, I mean, that, that alone took out a couple of thousand. Um, so... Yeah, eh, they weren't all all successful. All the raids. I mean, they were, they were, a lot of them were compromised. And there's talk that there was a mole um, high up in um, Rhodesian intelligence, um, possibly in special branch, or the CIOs also was a central intelligence organisation. And they think there was a mole um, British guy um, who was reporting everything basically. Back to the Brits and the Americans, yeah. And the and so and, and, and that would, that information would go full circle back to the guerrillas. Yeah. How would that happen? And I'm, I'm assuming, seeing as you're you're the official RLI historian as well, aren't you? Well, I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if there is an official, but I was a historian. Yeah, yeah. I did a lot of the RLI books. Yeah. So you, you've got a name pinned to this guy, haven't you? I suspect. I certainly have. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me. Um, can we talk about the can we talk more about the camps? Is that all right? Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that the demographic of those recruits was pretty young. I mean, we're talking like guerrilla warfare. We're not talking. You can only join the military when you're 16. Yeah, and you can only go on operations when you're yeah. 18. Uh, what's what's the youngest? Uh, you know what? It's not a comfortable question actually. But I'll ask it. I'll ask it because I, I say because I've, I've I've been asked a similar thing myself. Yeah, from, from my own experiences. What, what's the youngest combatant you ever came up uh, came up against? Oh, with the enemy, I would say 
15, 16, maybe. Yeah, yeah. They were. They are very young. Um, most of the sort of rank and file were kids like us, you know, 15, 16. Um, I don't think they sent them um, on ops until they were over 16. Um, I mean, one of their major methods of recruiting was to go and kidnap a whole school in Rhodesia and then march them across the border. And those would be school kids from uh, high school, senior school, so they'd be from 13, 14 up. Um, and then they'd spend two, three years in the camps being trained, indoctrinated, um, and then eventually sent in, in, into Rhodesia. Yeah. You pull your chair in just slightly, just could we get a bit, a bit closer to that mic? Cheers, bud. Um, and, and what was the... <coughs> What was the camp? What were the camps like? What 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 was kind of the pattern of life there? What was the layout like? Were these were these big camps? And we talk about twenty thousand there, um, or or you, you spoke about three camps that you raided, which is about fifteen fifteen thousand across the three. Oh well, you were part of those raids or, onto one of the camps. What what were they like? What do these things look like? They were massive, um, and they they covered a lot of ground. Um, I mean, some of them would cover. Uh, 20 to 25, maybe more, square miles. Um, so you're looking at at least five miles by five miles or more. And th there wasn't just one camp. It was a whole lot of series of camps, like satellite camps, um, mainly for defensive purposes. Um, but they had their regular barracks and they had, um, you know, parade grounds and... Obviously, defence was a massive thing, so there were a lot of uh, the whole place was ringed with trenches, um, anti-aircraft emplacements, bunkers, um, that sort of thing. Um, they had armories, they had hospitals, um, camouflaged as much as possible from the air. So, you know, you fly over in a helicopter, you might not even know that there's a camp there. Um, that's how how well they managed to camouflage it. But they were fairly complacent. Um, and that's why they had their parade grounds and they, that, that kind of thing, um, until the Rhodesians started hitting them and then they were forced to move the camps further and further inland, away from the Rhodesian border, um, which made it more difficult for us because of the, the distances involved. Um, but, yeah, they, they were pretty well uh, well-stocked, um, Stocked with food, ammunition. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were absolutely amazing, amazing places. How would they? How would they camouflage such a big place from from the sky? How would they? How would, any unusual method there? Not really. Because um, I've heard stories from in from Viet, in Vietnam. Yeah. Where um, they would, where the uh, the Viet Cong would, for example, well, they would they would weave the jungle canopy over. So an area where they had to cut it down yeah. with, for whatever, a, a, a main supply route, a, a parade ground, for, for example, whatever, they would then weave the canopy over so you couldn't see that there was yeah. a route. They would do, do that. Anything like that going on? Yeah, there was. Um, they had a lot of, um, they even had Vietnamese um, advisors. Um, there were a lot of Cuban advisors, um, Soviet advisors, Chinese advisors, so they, they had all these guys, particularly on the weapons systems. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they did all those kind of tricks. But most of the um, barrack rooms, for example, were not brick and mortar um, or tin roof. A lot of them were, but um, a lot of them were thatch or bashers, as I think that's the word that we lifted from Malaya. Um, and 
those are very difficult to see anyway um, from from the air. So yeah, but it's very difficult to hide ten or twenty thousand people. Very difficult. So I mean, although they did do a lot of um, camouflaging, um, various techniques, um, we always knew where they were. Yeah, yeah. You went uh, your your journey uh, through 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 well your military career, shall we say? Unusual. Um, you you started as a conscript. You weren't sure about whether you want to be involved in it or not. Um, and I think the the book also articulates that you felt that afterwards as well when you left. You weren't still not maybe I don't know you 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 put maybe something down. What not sure about how, what to think of your involvement in it, whether it was right or wrong. But at the same time, you ended up signing up as a regular, didn't you? And getting promoted and becoming a I think you were a platoon commander at one point or commander platoon. I did, yeah. Just somebody because there were no officers and sergeants left. <laughs> They've all been shot or wounded. <laughs> what, what, so, talk to me about that journey, Chris. Like, what, what was, what, how were you developing as an individual? Because yeah. the military does incredible things to people, and then, then you throw in operations. If you're lucky enough to be part of significant operations, that doesn't. I say incredible. I'm not. I'm not insinuating that this. It can that can be positive or negative, right? Incred- yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible isn't necessarily a positive word, right? But yeah, talk to me about that journey. We're, we're, well, as I say, when I when I um, was conscripted, the national service period at the time was twelve months. I'd barely been in two or three months when it was increased to eighteen months. Um, I was hoping to go to university in England, um, and I'd been accepted accepted by a couple of universities. <coughs> and England, I think, they start in September, the, the, the university year. So I was hoping to get an exemption. So I'd do nine months in the Rhodesian Army and get an exemption to go to university overseas which was not uncommon, so it, I could have done it. Um, then it was increased to 18 months, and they said, well, too bad. You can do your 18 months, and you go to university the following September. Um, but at the time, I kind of, when I did sign up, um, I'd just been paratrained. And um, our, we were the second para course um, in the RLI, so we were sort of right up at the front there, and it was... We were quite a glamorous kind of um, role we were undertaking. And um, I thought, well, I've been paratrained. I'm becoming um, used to the war. I'm actually quite enjoying my time in the army. I was enjoying the camaraderie. And uh, and I thought, well, it seems such a waste to become this para and then leave in a couple of months. So I decided, well, I may as well sign on for the three-year minimum period as a regular and get paid for it. Um, and, of course, my back I was back paid on a regular salary from when I'd been conscripted. So it was like a whole year's difference. And, and the regular pay was, was generous comparatively compared to the pittance the, the Nashos got. Oh, question for you. Were the, were the black soldiers paid the same as white soldiers, or were they on a different wage? That's a very good question. I think they were... Initially, they were getting less, but I think by the time I signed on, they were getting the same. I think, I think, yeah, mm. yeah. Plus, of course, you got all sorts of allowances when you're you get a, a star allowance. Each soldier was graded, sort of one star, two star, three star, five star soldier, um, depending on what courses you have done, what experience you have, and you end up as a five star soldier. You get pay increase for every grade or star. You get a parachute allowance. You get a living out of allowance out of barracks. You get a bush allowance. You get all sorts of allowances. So it was quite a lot of money. 
Um, that was a major attraction. What was the bush allowance? If you were, if you were, we gone. What was the bush allowance? Is that be, is that on ops? An ops allowance? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I didn't realise you get all those. You get all those benefits back then. <laughs> it's quite well developed. <laughs> it was in Rhodesian dollars, so you know. Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't quite the same, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was was good money at the time. Yeah. You uh, another thing that uh, surprised me in the book was the prevalence of not African people fighting in the Rhodesian forces, uh, British, uh, Australians, Kiwis, all sorts of people. Like people are out for getting involved in the next up and taking advantage of it kind of like yeah it seems to me kind of like when people do an excursion to um uh the uh oh god the foreign legion yeah you know so what what was that what was that experience with those guys like why were why why were they joining why for, were they coming to for a variety of reasons i mean most of the americans joined um most of the americans for example joined they generally believed they're making a stand against communism um, How were they allowed to join? Did you have to be Rhodesian? No, no, no. Anyone could join, um, and in fact, they're actively recruited. We uh, Rhodesians had recruiting officers in the UK. Um, Soldier of Fortune magazine was a massive recruiting uh, operation. We would just place adverts, and then and they'd all come and join. All these Vietnam guys, you know, Vietnam had just finished in '75, or you know, or earlier, and um, so we had a lot of Vietnam vets. We had a lot of um, Brits, Brit Paris, Brit SAS, Marines. Um, Royal Marines, um, uh, all most of them, all with Northern Ireland experience, amongst other things. Um, so a lot of them came out. Um, they, they, they all like to think of themselves as steely-eyed mercenaries, but they weren't. They were just soldiers. They paid exactly the same as the Rhodesians. They didn't get any special kind of merc allowance, um, but they used to kid us all that they were. Heavy dudes, you know, mercs. <laughs> They're good guys. And uh, a lot of Brits, uh, Australians. I mean, at one stage, apparently, I was speaking to the CO once after the war, he said, at one stage, we had, Rhodesian Light Infantry had, could count 18 different nationalities in the ranks. And many Americans, Canadians, as I say, Brits, and a lot of South Africans, because the South Africans, until their border war really got going, provided the bulk of the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Um, yeah, so they came across the three commander particularly. Um, I don't know why, but um, attracted the most foreigners, as we call them. Um, and at one stage in my little platoon, eleven troop, I was the only the only born Rhodesian there at the time. And I mean, I remember my stick consisted of a a paddy, um, X I R A. X I R A. Yeah, yeah, really? yeah. We had a few of them. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, they didn't actually ask too many questions about a man's background. Um, we, uh, I had a Scotsman, a guy called Nicholson, um, and then an Afrikaner, Tom Argyle, um, who'd been in the South African police. So that was typical of a, a stick in, in three commander, sort of one Rhodesian, three foreigners, you know, yeah. How old were you when you took command of the stick, of a stick? I first got command of a stick, um, I was still 18. Um, but that wasn't regularly. Uh, by the time I was 19, I had my own stick full-time. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of these guys were in their late 20s, particularly the Vietnam vets and a lot of the Brits. Um, 
You know, they were all older, older people. Um, you know, they'd, they'd been around the block. Why did you end up in that position then, Chris? Um, well, a lot of them did too. I mean, um, but I, I think, I don't know, we were always desperately short of um, uh, junior NCOs and um, stick leaders. Uh, they, I mean, we, we suffered a 40% casualty rate um, in 1978. Throughout the year? Yeah, yeah steady throughout the year. Um, so we were always losing people, or there might have been away on a course or on leave. But uh, Is that 40% across the whole of the forces? No, just three commander. And I imagine it would uh, translate across the whole of Rhodesian Light Infantry. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's an incredible number. I think. The, I think the. I think in the Second World War, uh, the 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 casualty rate was ten percent. Uh, if you average out, across yeah. the Second World War yeah. was ten ten percent. One mm. in ten. Um, Forty percent is huge. That's that is huge. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But I mean, you know, by seventy eight or seventy seven onwards, we were pretty well in action, going into combat every day. Not always, but I mean, sometimes every day, sometimes twice a day. I mean, there's occasions where you heard of people going on the same fire force operation three times in one day. So the fire force go in, clean up, do one operation, maybe not finish it, bring in the territorials or the Salute Scouts to finish it, and then get called out to another scene, sometimes directly from that scene, as we call it, to the next operation. Uh, might be 20 minutes flying time away. It might be two hours flying time away. So... Yeah, it was it was intense, you know, and uh, it was relentless almost. And of course, we took um, casualties. So you know, forty percent. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Um, how, how, how did you cope with that kind of that, that intensity of operations, or experiencing contacts, for example? Uh, that's that, that's. Uh, that again, that's another that's another you know, unbelievable statistic. And I know, well, um, with the jumping, that you would some sometimes even like two, three, four jumps a day as as powers of jumping has been has been known. Um, what, yeah, what was that like to cope with? And uh, especially from the mental health aspect, there's obviously a huge, mm. uh, the huge focus on it at the moment in the British military. Yeah, the after effects of significant operations where there's a lot of stuff going on. But I'm I'm quite happy to sit here and say absolutely like the pace, the intensity of what you're talking about. I only ever experienced that over a short period of time, so maybe weeks or months at a time. Mm. It wasn't the entire time I was ser- you know serving Afghanistan, being the, the main one. The entire time I was serving Afghanistan, and yet there's obviously been a big impact of it. What was it like at the time? Did you, did you ever experience anyone that got in, in inverted commas battle shock where they yeah, just yeah. freeze, freeze, yeah. couldn't respond in the middle of a contact? How, yeah, 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 yeah. It was an accepted fact that um, we call it cracking up. Um, and some of the older soldiers, the, 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 the vets um, who'd been around three, five years, you know, generally five years was about all they could take. Um, even, even that, but by the time, I mean, I didn't sign on again when I'd finished my three years because I knew. I just had a feeling that I wouldn't make it. I just had this deep down feeling that do not sign on. I mean, they offered me sergeant if I stayed on. And I thought, no, thank you very much. I've, I've had enough. Um, and it wasn't uncommon for some of the older soldiers to actually go to the OC 
and say, sir, I've had enough. I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Um, you know, I've been doing this for four years or five years, and generally they were pretty sympathetic and, you know, they put them onto some kind of admin role or whatever. But, yeah, it, it was an accepted fact and it was never looked down upon that you'd cracked up, really. Um, some people never. I mean, some people could do it forever. Um, but everyone's different and it's the same as PTSD. I mean, some people never get it um, and they just cannot understand why others did. Um, and it's not the, the, the quantity, I don't think, of, of the, the action. Um, it only takes one one episode that um, is stressful, one contact where you see something or do something that is really horrible. It only takes one. It doesn't take, it's not a sustained thing of a, a, a variety of, of, of operations. It, everyone's different, as I say, and um, I certainly um, suffered. I mean, the, the way we kind of tended to cope was... Um, Drugs and alcohol. Um, even even in in the war, I mean, every night uh, we'd come back to base and we'd um, it was it was not heavy drugs or anything. It's like the marijuana. Now and again, we'd go and steal the morphine out of the medics packs and shoot up with that. But <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, um, but. Yeah, so, but generally it was, we'd get out of it, just totally lose it at night and um, next morning start again. Not every night, but um, yeah, I mean, drugs and alcohol were one way of doing it. Um, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, I think because of the operations, had an appalling reputation um, back in back in town on R&R. We just absolutely smashed the town what apart. You, what do you mean? Oh, you had, a, you had a bad, you guys had a bad reputation. Yeah, shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'd be, so... On these op, just to sorry, you'd be going on your ops. You do, let's say one one contact a day. Let's say two or three every day was different, right? But the generally speaking, it was high intensity, always like you know, always fighting, um, always at, 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 like significant risk of getting killed or injured. But when you were coming back in other, of those ops, you were back into camp, into normal. Like you could go out, you could go out that night. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. wasn't like operating in in a in a foreign country no. where you were confined to camp. No, you could get back and just get on the lash after just absolutely being involved in some crazy incursion in Mozambique yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, generally, we a bush trip, as it was called, was six weeks. So you would do a tour of six weeks right, okay. into the um, forward bases, the fire force bases in the operational areas. Ah. Then after six weeks, um, you'd be relieved by another commando or by RAR or whoever who would take over the fire force, and you would then go back to barracks uh, in Salisbury, in Harare, for uh, two weeks or ten days to two weeks, which was R&R generally, a um, little bit of training involved, but basically R&R. And, &R. and um, you'd, be, you'd have a few duties to do around camp, but basically you stood down and you can go out town at night and whatever you know and we did and yeah we were pulling i mean just trash the place absolutely on the lash smashing the place it's, up. it's no surprise is it yeah it's like the same as any any yeah. back from any operation i think but yeah. the difference is the frequency at which you're doing it so to, to understand then so you have, you have the barracks then 
you would you would push into a, an area of operations where you were intended to operate. You would establish a camp, which a semi permanent camp, for six weeks. Yeah, and that would be where the fire force operations would be launched from Correct. against the guerrillas. Correct. Right. Okay. Right. Now those camps, I mean, there were main bases at um, around the country, Mount Darwin, Grand Reef, which was near Mtali, and then Buffalo Range in the southeast. Um, they were permanent camps. Um, uh, you know, they had. Um, Tarmac runways, um, they had uh, um, permanent barrack rooms, uh, yeah, I mean, and then of course the blue jobs, the Air Force, you know, they had the swimming pools and all the luxury, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, they were permanent camps. Um, not all, uh, sometimes we'd be sent to an area where there was nothing there and we'd have to make up our own camp, um, tents, that sort of thing. Um, as long as there was a strip, an airstrip, um, or somewhere where the helicopters could land and a road leading in there so you could get the avgas for the helicopters. That could also be a camp. But generally there were main um, base camps uh, forward. They were called them forward airfields, FAFs. Um, you had various FAFs around the country. And most of them were fairly sophisticated. As I say, they could take Dakotas or they could take um, jets, Canberra's and the, the Hunters. You know, They could also land. So they were significant operations. Is there any is there any mission or or, or operation that sticks in your mind as being probably the most challenging, the most difficult um, that you undertook during your time in the RLA? Yeah, we were given an operation. Um, when I say we were on fire force, we weren't always on fire force. That changed. It it, it evolved from sort of seventy six, seventy seven. The Rhodesian Light Infantry at the time was doing half its time on fire force, half its time on patrolling, that sort of thing. Um, external operations, external reconnaissance type operations. Um, and I remember being sent, um, our stick had been sent into Mozambique um, to patrol what's <coughs> called the cut line. It was the power lines that ran from Kaborabasa hydroelectric scheme, massive dam on the Zambezi and serviced South Africa. So about 1,500 kilometers along these power lines. And we were told we weren't allowed to do anything to those by the South Africans, although they were quite angry if we'd cut off their power supply. But we knew that the guerrillas used the cut line as a, because there was a road, all a dirt road, all the way up the power lines, and they used that. So we were- You could cut through the bush yeah, quite easily, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were sent in, um, to really cut spore, as they call it, just um, got dropped off there, do 20 miles every day with these massive Bergen packs and 40-degree heat, and that just took it, killed us, absolutely killed us. But, but cutting spore, for people who aren't understanding what you're saying, you're talking about tracking there, right? Yeah. You're picking up the ground sign left yeah. by gorillas yeah. moving through. You're, you're basically looking yeah. at the ground, looking at the leaves, looking yeah. at the layer of land and trying to work out, is this... An animal track, a human track. Yeah. If it's a human track, is it a gorilla track? Exactly. Are you going to spend 20 miles yeah. following the wrong flipping people? Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> that happened. I, I mean, the Rhodesians, they took a long time to actually realize that um, the regular, some of the units like the Rhodesian Light Infantry and the RAR were not cut out for bush tracking type patrolling operations. Why is that? I mean, we did it. We... we, we uh, we were better employed being used in a strike force sort of capability in fire force or externally on external operations and leave the um, tracking type operations to the Salu scouts, to the experts, 
that kind of thing. So, yeah, but it, uh, until 76, 77, we used to do that. It was a sort of throwback from what we call the border control operations, where you got dumped on the Zambezi River and you got to look out for canoes gliding across the river at night, you know, with 30 gorillas or, you know, that sort of thing. So that it took a while for the, the, the high command to appreciate that and realise that employing troops um, like us in that kind of role was a waste of time. Um, so we spent two weeks. Um, we had a couple of contacts on the way, but more luck by more luck than, than any kind of judgment, where we just bumped into Frelimo, Mo, um, Mozambique uh, army troops, um, who were hand and glove with Zana, so they were regarded as fair game. And um, we enjoyed it when we had a contact because it compromised the whole operation. And there was no point in us... Uh, staying there any longer because <laughs> they knew you we were there <laughs> i know the feeling <laughs> i know the feeling yeah 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 it's like ah oh, thank god thank yeah. god my life's at risk and there's a big massive thing going on because it means once this is done yeah. if i survive I, I can get off the ground <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and during that one particular bush uh, trip we'd done two weeks and our bergens were so heavy i mean we were carrying landmines and 60 millimeter mortar and mortar bombs. And I mean, you back it up against them with piney tree, you put the bergen on the back on, against the tree, then you'd sit down and wiggle your way in. So you're sitting in the bergen and two mates would have to pull you up. You couldn't get up. And this is what they thought was, was going to win the war. Um, but um, getting back to that particular, and we had a very um, keen officer who thought the more miles we can achieve a day, the more successful we are. Um, I don't know what he was after, Bronze Cross possibly, but um, I was f fortunate enough to uh, get the only kill on that whole trip. Um, and again, by pure luck, um, and we'd stopped. At, we, I mean, the temperatures they were getting up to 40, 45 degrees Celsius in the shade. It was hot and um, no water. So we all had to carry our own water. You know, 12 to 14 canteens, plus this Bergen with water bombs and landmines <laughs> in it. And we'd stop for a break, a brew-up. We got that from uh, from the Brits. They, they all live by their brew-ups. <laughs> Cup of tea, you know, in the middle of the bush. And, it's not uh, changed. It's not changed. <laughs> Yeah, they took us a lot. Um, and we stopped, and uh, I was sitting with the South African guy, young guy, making our tea. And I'd left my rifle again, foolish. Um, my trade craft wasn't brilliant, and I'd left it just out of reach. Popped it up against the tree, just over there, maybe about a couple of meters away. Um, so yeah, it wasn't within arm's length. It wasn't. Chris. No, it wasn't. Naughty, it, naughty. It, it, it wasn't. And. Um, uh, we were making our tea there with um, Harry. The, no, no, who was it? Um, whoever the guy was. And uh, suddenly, there's a face. I see a black face in the bush about 30 metres away. Uh, what? What's going on here? Who's this guy? And I could see he was military. He had a military forage cap on. And straight away, I knew Frelimo. They'd been tracking us. Um, and that caught up with us and we me and my buddy we were on the extreme perimeter of the camp of, of our sort of rest place and I saw my rifle over there and I thought oh, shit 
And this guy was meanwhile looking. This all happened, obviously, in a split second. So I said to um, Griffin, he was the guy with me, um, he was killed that, that next r sadly enough, in a car crash. I said, Griffin, to your two o'clock, look there. And he's looking, what the? And I said, shoot him. And he put his rifle in, in, into his shoulder and click. Oh, no. Stoppage. Yeah. At the same time, the... Um, <laughs> oh, no. So I then scurried, grabbed my rifle, and now the Mozambican guy, he's getting his AK. Because the Filimos are alerted now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they've seen him pull yeah. the weapon to the shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're shouting and all sorts of things. And I managed to grab my weapon, and I just pulled it up, and ba-ba, I fired a double tap just in the general direction and hit the guy right between the eyes, just dropped him. I mean, that was the benefit of that open-eyed, uh, open-sighted shooting that we taught over and over and over again. Explain that, go on. It's um, when you don't aim uh, through the sights, uh, you use the rifle. It's instinct, instinctive shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, what was it called? Open-sighted. Yeah, you use it as the rifle as an extension of your arm, basically. So it's as if you're pointing at someone, and you, you fire a double tap, da da, um, and that we did through. You must have done it the jungle lane. Snap shooting, we call it. We snap call shooting. It. Snap there shooting. you go. There you go. Shooting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, yeah. When uh, it's one of the things, especially in jungle bush. Yeah. Uh, especially there from. My experience is, yeah, it's like that is that is what's going to what's going to keep you alive because exactly. your engagements in the bush and the jungle are so much closer. Yeah, it needs to be instinctive. If you if you are taking, yeah, it, well, you haven't got the time to be no. aiming, and you don't need to be because again, you're talking thirty meters there. That is nothing. If your snap shooting's on the ball, if your instinctive shooting's on the ball, that, well, you're going to hit that guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if yeah, you yeah. and it needs practice. It did. Yeah, I mean, it that that was. Out of everything that we learned on our recruits course was snap shooting was what saved the most lives and accounted for the most casualties. I mean, I think you must have done it when you go down a path and these figures pop up yeah. on the well, left. And that's the challenging thing about it. It's, yeah. it's snap shooting, it's instinctive shooting, but it's not indiscriminate shooting, that's which a, is the important distinction. Exactly. It's literally the most the toughest thing you can do is is to be able to in a in the instant as soon as you see whatever you think the threat is to confirm the threat yeah. as you're shouldering the weapon. Yeah. To confirm it as you're doing it. Because yeah. you don't because if you if you're going to employ that snap shooting, instinctive shooting, especially in counterinsurgency operations, if you're going to employ it willy nilly, not properly, yeah. that's how you, that's how civilians get killed it's indiscriminately. A, and you can't do that. Exactly. Um yeah. I know I'm, I'm robbing your stuff. So no, no, well that was the end of the story. And then we um we went running after the um we got our mortar into action, thank goodness, because we got rid of a few bombs which we didn't have to carry. Was it fifty one? Sixty Sixty millimeter, was it sixty one? Yeah, fifty ones came in later, I think. Yeah, but sixty. Yeah, would have been. I think it would have been sixty then. We had. Yeah, I always get confused because British military's gone back to sixty now. Yeah, that's what yeah. we had. Yeah, right. sixty millimeter. Yeah, so we got, uh, we got that into action, lobbed a few bombs at them, chased them for several miles. They'd gone. They'd got nothing. Came back and um, the Americans booby trapped the body, put a grenade under it. And then we based up that night, heard the explosion. As, I don't know whether it was hyenas or whatever, try to have a go at the body. And then we were uplifted. You know, the whole operation had been compromised. When you say the Americans, what do you mean the Americans? Well, one of the American guys in oh. our unit, you know, he, um, he thought it would be a good idea to booby trap the body. But they'd gone. So I, I don't think it was him coming back. I think it was a wild animal maybe having a go. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What, was, what was the closest you came to, uh, to checking out? 
index, like take, having your life taken? There, there were a few times. Um, the, the, the closest was right at the end in about a month before I was due for DMOB. Um, and I was carrying the MAG. Um, I think you guys call it the GPMG. GPMG, yeah. The, in fact, I call it the MAG. When I, read, when I was reading the excerpt from your book at the uh, start, I said I call it the MAG. Yeah. MAG, okay. MAG. GPMG it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or Jimpy as I think. Jimpy, yeah. yeah. The general. Yeah, yeah. We call it just the, just the MAG. Um, fantastic weapon. And I carried that quite a lot of the time. Um, and because I was, I was sort of on, on the road to being demobbed, I thought, well, let me carry the gun. I don't need to command a stick. Um, you know, let the other guys learn the, the tricks of the trade. So I was carrying a machine gun, and uh, it was sort of early January 79, Fire Force. We, we went into a, a village area, rural village area, fairly um, affluent in terms of Rhodesia. I mean, there were some good crops in the field, a very clean kraal village, um, and we went in there and... I just sort of gaily went sauntering into the... There were sort of two rows of huts, maybe 10, 15 huts on each side of the village with a sort of open area in the middle, which was a sort of communal area where they sat outside, did their cooking, that sort of thing. And I went, silly me, you know, bang into this open area in the middle. And I didn't realise what I did soon enough, that um, there were probably about six or seven guerrillas right at the end of the crawl, thank, fortunately, and they opened up on me and the rifleman next to me. And that was, that was, I thought I was dead. I really did, I mean, and... Uh, because you were in the open ground. I was in the open ground, yeah. My fault. Um, I didn't think to, to go in taking cover alongside one of the huts or anything like that. Just sort of um, wide asleep, as we called it. Yeah, and that, that nearly nearly took me out. Um a terrifying feeling, and uh, but it happens in an instant, and they were accurate. I mean, the the rounds were all around my head, around my body. I felt like I was boxed in. That's why, how close the rounds were. And that night, when I got back to back to base camp, um, I'd taken about four rounds in my webbing. Jesus, either side. So one water bottle had been shattered. There was a radio b- a battery in the other pack. And a belt, MAG belt that had been smashed. So yeah, I'd had two rounds on either side. So how I wasn't hit, I don't know. Someone's looking after me. Anyway, we, me and Kevin, the, other, the rifleman with me, I said we scarped into the shelter of a of a, a grain bin, which was built. A grain bin was built off the ground on these tiny poles with about three or four inch diameter. And we took cover behind these little poles. And they were still shooting at us. They'd found us. They followed us. And these, uh, and there was SKSs, there were AKs. I mean, we could identify the sounds. They followed us there. And it's a real war story. But the ground was kicking up all around. And I thought, that's what we did. Then suddenly it stopped. Uh, There was no firing. What happened? They ran away. They they withdrew. Why? Do they think there's more of you than yeah, yeah. Well, they knew the helicopters were floating around. They could hear the yeah. K car with the twenty mil cannon, and the, you know they knew that there was more. Than, there wasn't just us two of us. There was a whole fire force in there, which there were. I mean, my stick leader at the time was an American, and and the other guy was also American. But they were sort of like fifty hundred meters away to our right, so they were going around that side of the crawl, and we were going through the middle. 
to see what we could flush out. And we flushed them out. They flushed us out. Um, and I was sitting there through the smoke and sort of um, the dust and everything. And I was sitting on my, my haunches um, with the, the MAG was on the ground between my legs um, on its bipods. Um, and I was just checking the belt to make sure it was all okay. And then suddenly through the other side of the crawl, I saw these figures darting darting away. And these were the shooters who were having a go at me. And they were running through a little mango plantation. And I, I couldn't believe it. They, they, were, they obviously didn't think I could see where they were going. So I sort of swiveled the gun, the, the MAG, sort of firing it sort of on the floor like that between my haunches and opened fire. And I could see the strikes, um, and there were traces as well. I could see the strikes through the dry mango leaves, chasing them. Uh, but short, so elevated at a fraction, and they went down. All of them, all four, went down. I mean, it was just, just an amazing, amazing thing that there they were literally a minute before trying to kill me, and through just fluke that I got them. Um, yeah, so that MAG is a... A fine weapon, as I yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I was fine the uh, jimpy gunner for uh, two thousand three, going to the Iraq War. Okay, and uh, I, I found myself and, and the two other guys. The three, there was, in 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 we used to have three per platoon. I remember at the time, it was simply Power Edge at the time were the only ones using the GPMG, employing it in the, at the platoon level significantly, and we would have one in each section. So every section of eight would have a GPMG. Um, yeah, and me and the other two guys, we still talk. I still talk to now, and we still talk with it regularly about how how much we. I mean, what a nightmare bit of kit, right? Yeah, like Christ Almighty, because the weapon's heavy. I mean, it's a fucking machine gun. Yeah, the weapon's heavy, right? Um, it Awkward. is. It is. That is not a weapon you can snap shoot well with, right? No. <laughs> and then you got all the ammo you got to carry with it. Uh, but man, yeah. if I could go back, yeah. I'd, I'd go. Yeah, give me that. Yeah. I'd, I'd give me that again. Yeah, and uh, and. Uh, did you ever jump with it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I jump, I jump with the GPMG. Yeah, but we'd, be, we'd strip it down. Oh uh, no, we we had ours fully assembled, strapped onto the side of your body. No. Yeah, obviously bipods in, and with a little bit of sticky tape over the barrel, stop it jamming into the dirt, and pull it into your 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 parachute straps. Now I'm sure uh, I may be misrecollecting this, but I'm sure that we used to have to take the barrel off and take the butt off, and it would go into a weapon sleeve and get strapped to the side of the, the side of your Bergen. Okay. Uh, but you, oh, hang on, you're talking about jumping in assault in, in assault, yeah, um, yeah. Conf, like configuration, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, right, yeah, yeah no, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. When we were jumping straight into action, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, we yeah, even had the had the the belt in loaded and sort of. Wrapped around. No, I never did that. Yeah, yeah, no, I never yeah. did that. I don't think I want to either. Yeah. Well, if I was, I'd, do, I'd give me an assault rifle, please, not the jimpy. <laughs> yeah, but, and even the FN was awkward, you know, to, to jump yeah. with. It was so long. It's yeah. a, you know, length, lengthwise. But the, the jimpy jumping and was not, uh, and, you know, if you landed on your right side as well, yeah. and I mean, our parachutes were fairly primitive. You had no control over them. We jumped from four, five hundred feet or whatever, and it, we, if you if you jumped in a wind or onto rocks and you landed on your right side where you, your weapon is strapped, bye bye. Okay. You know, you know, every every jump we had casualties. Yeah, at least one or two broken legs or whatever. And that's another awesome. But when we got to start wrapping it up, that's another awesome part of the book. Is that the uh, yeah that that jump inside the operational jumps, um, ju- uh, uh, that whole insight into um, 
into what is you know rarely heard of these days in operational jumps in they happen yeah. um just very rarely but uh yeah mate chris it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you it really has um i hope we can do this again yeah um there's so much to talk about mate and uh, for anyone for anyone listening so in fact, before we finish, yes, you've so there are people who have read Fire Force, right? And yes. they would have, they would have. I know there are co- co- so my old colleagues have read this um, when it was the two thousand, the previous publication. Right. What has changed with republishing it? What, what's not, not a lot. Okay. Um, a, a lot of the pictures have changed. Um, I've brought them up to date a little bit, found some better pics, uh, but really just rewrote the thing and polished it up. Because uh, you mentioned before there, there was some. The, some of the, I think in previous publications, that there was some aspect, there was some of this, of your, some of the original uh, that you wrote that was omitted from the original publications. The, the, the first first edition that was done in 1988, um, the publisher there, fairly um, conservative right-wing kind of publisher, and he omitted a lot of the stuff, um, uh, took it out, changed my style completely, and so come time in, 97, when I republished it myself, I rewrote it. And then now this edition, I've rewritten it again. Just polished it up, but pretty well the same story. Mm. It's, yeah. inc- it's, it's an incredible book. And it, Amazon, obviously. Yeah. And then uh, that's the main point, point to get it, right? It is, yeah. Amazon, mate. Yeah, incredible yeah. book. So I, I highly recommend people, if, you're, if, if you've enjoyed listening to Chris talk, um, then um, get, pick up the book. If I pick up the book anyway, it's a fucking incredible read. And and much, you know, you can hear from you talking now, you know, it's it's not... You're not, uh, yeah. What's the word? You're not dressing anything up. It's completely open and honest account of your experiences of water time. Yeah. Um, so thank yeah. you, mate. Thank you for thank you. today, and thank you for for, the, for writing the flipping book. It's, it is incredible. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Anything yeah. else? Uh, anything else you want to mention before we finish? I'm out. Good. I'm out. Brilliant. listening uh just to repeat you can pick up a copy of fire force uh just look for it on amazon fire force by chris cox uh sponsoring the podcast today as a reminder were rugby for heroes a fundraising organization a not-for-profit fundraising organization set up in 2009 in the wake of the death of private joe whittaker who was sadly killed on ops in afghanistan in 2008 serving the parachute regiment find out more about rugby for heroes at rugbyforheroes.org rugbyforheroes.org also sponsoring the podcast with the Aardvark Group an organisation who for decades have been deploying technical innovations around the globe to try and rid the world of unexploded ordnance and anti-personnel and anti-tank landmines uh, the Aardvark Group on social media LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and the website is aardvark.group. Definitely check out the shop. If you are someone who operates in hostile environments in whatever role, in whatever industry, then uh, the Aardvark might well be stocking some gear that you could use. Aardvark.group is the website. The Development Society, we're also sponsoring the podcast today, a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. DevSoc, they're more than just a merch company. They're, they're truly a community of like-minded people looking to improve. Go to the development society, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk. Sign up for the infamous Daily Waves newsletter and, and get involved. Also get into their Slack community. Thank you to DevSoc. And finally, sponsoring the podcast today were Monkey Mountaineering, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated niche adventure travel company headed up by Sam Marshall, 
are now in their fourth year providing mountain-based travel and adventure holidays, not only overseas, but also in the UK. Go to monkeymountaineering.com for more information. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching if you watched it. Until the next time, out.